in our second week of this series, Housekeeping, let's remember the core idea. While none of us particularly enjoy housekeeping, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. There are a few sick individuals that enjoy housekeeping. But most of us, we, we know that it's kind of like a necessary routine of life. And one of the things that I think is true as you relate this analogy into the church is that strong houses are formed with strong housekeeping. You need it. It's foundational to creating the kind of home that I think all of us want to create. Now, we're looking at four foundational principles. Nothing earth-shattering here this morning. Nothing potentially new to you. But four principles that if a church maintains these housekeeping principles, that church will remain strong. We looked at the first last week. We saw that the church develops a culture of servanthood. We saw that serving is at the very heart of God. And if I want to look like Jesus in any way, I must become a servant like he was. This week, we're going to be looking at the church investing in fellowship. We'll get more on that in a minute. Next week, we're looking at the church being a launching pad. Like we said, we don't want any 50-year-old adults living in our house per se. We kind of want them to fly out of the nest, right? Well, I think there's a, an analogy that's similar to that in the church. We want to see Christians grow up, become mature, move on and do things in the name of the Lord. The last week will be Pastor James delivering the church, valuing stewardship. So let's take a look at fellowship this morning. Now, I recently read the story of Pia Farikoff. She graduated Cardinal Cushing Central High School just outside of Boston in 1983. She had a pretty full life, nine siblings, excellent student. She made the National Honor Society of her school. She received a scholarship to the University of Massachusetts. Now, Pia never married, but she did have friends, and she attempted to keep connection with her siblings, stay involved in their lives. Sadly, in 2014, March 5th, Pia was found dead in her car, parked in the garage of her home. She was discovered by repairmen who had come to serve a foreclosure notice. She wasn't stabbed. She wasn't shot. They couldn't immediately discover what the cause of death may have been. But that's not the most stunning feature of this story. You see, Ferenkoff did not die that day that the repairman found her. She hadn't died the day before, nor the week prior, nor even one year prior. No, medical examiners determined that Pia had died shortly after February 25th, 2009. So you can do the math with me. 2014 when she's discovered, 2009 when she dies, almost five years years of time has passed. And here you have a woman who is 44 years old, nine siblings, dozens of nieces and nephews, friends, co-workers, 1,817 days until she's finally discovered. Now this might 
in your mind represent an extreme example, but it still begs the question, how does someone like this go unnoticed, unmissed? They were doing some follow-up interview work around the area. They were talking to people when this story had first broken, and a lot of people were responding to the news anchors and saying, you know what, I wonder if I would be discovered if I went missing. I think stories like this, the extreme examples that we'll find in our culture, point to larger problems that exist within our own culture. They call this the new leprosy or the leprosy of the 21st century. Our way of life has produced a world where people are friendly, but more and more becoming friendless, where they are known by many, but actually really known by very few. Why is that? Well, I think it has something to do with our modern value system. Presently, I would say that we value autonomy more than connectivity, entertainment more than friendship, security more than trust, independence more than mutual dependence, privacy more than transparency. And as you put all of that together and you create the recipe out of that, you think to yourself, it's nearly inconceivable to imagine that you could actually build something like genuine, real community on those values. And it seems to be true. In fact, there have been deleterious effects. Google search some of the modern problems and you'll see that the charts are off the charts when it comes to issues like loneliness, anxiety, trust for one another. Trust. Knowing your neighbor. We lock our doors at night. We lock our cars. We don't let the kids go down the street on their bike to go play at the local park. The next-door neighbor has become the stranger who happens to live next door. I'm telling you this morning as we look at the biblical worldview that this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. If we're going to be what Jesus has called us to be, if we're going to be the church, everything that we are called to be, everything that we are called to do rests upon the community that the church establishes. And that community cannot be a mile wide and an inch deep. No, we have to invest in an old concept. It's called fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? Well, last week I said, fellowship is more than a bunch of Christians getting together in a backyard barbecue and patting one another on the back, calling each other brother and sister. No, the term fellowship comes from the Greek term koinonia, and it means to share in common. Now, what is it that Christians share in common with one another? Well, we're all blood-bought sinners, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. And it's this common 
sharing that our community is established upon. What I find interesting about this concept of fellowship in the Bible is that it is not a term that is defined to us. We don't have a paragraph in the Bible that says, well, if you check like these seven boxes, you will know that you are in biblical koinonia. The Bible only ever shows us what it looks like. And we have a picture of it in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 45. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can. We'll also have the scriptures on the screen for you. The Bible says this, and this is the first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, as I look at this section of scripture, there are really two building blocks, if you will, for biblical community. This is the blueprints of it. You'll notice that the two are Verse 42, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, I know some of you highly analytical, good Bible students are saying to me, but Rob, there's four things up there. There's also the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, Luke commentators, as they look at Acts, are divided on whether there are four key ideas here or two key ideas. As I've done the study, I'm convinced that it is two key ideas, apostles' teaching and fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayers is simply an elaboration upon what fellowship looked like in this first church. So think about it with me this morning. There are two core foundational ways that the church is the church, and one of those happens to be fellowship. So it involves more than great music. Even if you have someone really cool like Josiah that's wearing skinny jeans, it involves more than, and dare I say this, moving sermons. It involves more than many of the trappings that we've come to expect or want out of a church. When you come back, you have to get down to the understanding of this early church to realize what really matters most. And I think they understood something that we may be forgetting today. They understood that the church is the gathering of people sharing their new life in Jesus Christ. The church is the gathering of people sharing their new life in Christ together. Think about this first church. Historically speaking, This church has just come into existence. There's 3,000 or so Christians who are gathered together in Jerusalem. And notice what they don't have. These Christians don't have anything tangible to lean on. They don't have a building. There's no organization. There's no church constitution and bylaws. Can you imagine a church functioning without those things? No celebrity pastors to watch if you miss Sunday. There's no copy of the complete Bible. So what do they have? Well, they have the apostles, their leaders. 
the ordinances. They have communion, which they share together, and baptism. They have prayer life together. And most of all, they have one another, which is the fellowship. So this mosaic that Luke is creating in Acts, it's a picture that looks a lot different than the picture we see today. Notice what the church was marked by. They were unusually devoted to one another. They were marked by wonder or awe, meaning they saw the hand of God moving in their midst. And we also see that they were radically open with their possessions and with their life. Contrast that with our value system again today. We tend to choose personal autonomy over devotion, entertainment over wonder, security over unselfishness, independence over vulnerability, and privacy over an open life. Here's what I'm going to say to you this morning. I've come to the conclusion that our culture is making us socially awkward. At least from a biblical perspective, right? I mean, we're kind of socially awkward at this point if you look at us compared to the biblical example. Now, recently, I was doing some scrolling on YouTube, and you know how YouTube uses an algorithm to identify things that you think you might want to watch, that they think you might want to watch? Well, guess what? I'm scrolling along, and then there's this video with a therapist that is telling people about themselves, 10 habits that you might be doing that make you socially awkward. Now, I'm looking at this and saying, why is this algorithm uh, identifying me for this? Am I socially awkward? Well, there's some really good tips as I watch it. One of the tips he says is this, you gotta focus on eye contact with people. You can't bore into their soul with your eyes, and you also don't want to be looking every which way, evasive with your eyes. Both of those behaviors make you look creepy. <laughs> they also said, you know, the first time you meet someone, you don't necessarily have to tell them all the dirty laundry in your closet. Like, that's kind of weird. We just had coffee hour, too. If you're a close talker, here's a pro tip. 12 inches of space, you will pop their bubble. So you can practice some of these things after church. But what about pro tips for church fellowship? Now, I actually don't want to provide you this morning with a list of do's and don'ts, because some of these cultural social cue considerations, you go and you fly to India and People hold hands all the time and stuff. We don't do that here. But what we want to pull out of the scripture are actually principles because principles are transferable across cultures and times. These are things that are true no matter when you live, where you live, what culture, these are true. So let's take a look at a couple of fellowship principles. The first principle I want you to see is that fellowship is based upon a fourth kind of love. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book that said, argued essentially that 
for a Christian to be strong, they would need to experience four kinds of loves in their life. Three of those loves we're pretty familiar with. You have eris, which is romantic love, phileo, which is love between friends, and then you have agape, which is sacrificial, godly love. But there's a fourth kind of love. This one may not be as commonly known to us. It's storge, love between family members. Now, interestingly enough, as you look at those loves, three of those loves involve your choice. You choose who you marry, you choose who you're going to be friends with, and you also choose who you will extend mercy to. But the fourth love is outside of your choice. You didn't choose your grandma, or your brother or sister, or your parents. And it turns out that if we're honest with ourselves with this fourth kind of love, that there are people in our family that I honestly wouldn't have chosen to love if it was up to me to choose that. I had to learn how to love them for who they are. Think about the local church now. It's this type of love, storge love, that is so often missing in the family of God. I don't get to choose who walks through the doors on Sunday morning. And if I start entering into that, choosing who I'm going to associate with in the local church, like people who look like me and think like me, have my same political leanings, who have kids at the same you know, life stage as I do, if I base all of my church attendance decisions upon these things, I'm not going to grow in the way that I could and should in Christ because I need this fourth kind of love. I need to learn to appreciate and love the person that I wouldn't naturally have chosen. We saw a picture of this this past Sunday. There was a bunch of OBCers, and thank God Cape Faith also showed up around the beach. So we had bonus baptism night. This was really cool for us. And you could just see the storge love pervasive. People sitting together, kids doing the, what's that thing again? They told me in the first service, the limbo. We're watching them do this. People from different backgrounds, different stories, and then you could hear the storage a love as the testimonies were being shared. I thought of Sydney Caprio's testimony is a prime example of this. She's talking about growing up in the church and how there were instrumental figures like Mr. Dick Service and Miss Rosemary and Miss Toonshy and Miss Jeannie, and there were so many other names that she was citing. And I'm, I'm leaving that encounter, and I'm thinking to myself, in what other social construct would a teenage girl see the value of people that she never would have chosen to associate with, like the church. It's a beautiful picture of storge love. And I'm telling you, the more you engross yourself in that kind of love, the more you grow into the person God calls you to be. Let's look at a second tip. Fellowship requires proximity. Proximity. Solomon, King Solomon said this in Proverbs 27.10, better is a neighbor 
who is near than a brother who is far away. So he's observing something that is very true of our relationships. Proximity matters. I have moved several times in my life. Anyone moved multiple times in your life? We're a very transient culture. I'm sure it's happened. Um, Everywhere I've been, I've been able to pour into friendships, create deep relationships, good fellowship with the church. But every time I relocate with those people, I find this dynamic. We say, let's stay in touch. And then you move away. And maybe you stay in touch, but it's not to the degree that you did before. You meet new people. You form new relationships. Those relationships start running deeper and deeper. Because proximity matters. I can't kind of spontaneously drop in on someone a thousand miles away. I can't show up in their time of crisis. I've come to the conclusion that relationships thrive on nearness and they thrive on consistency. So for the church, this means that as I show up regularly, as I find myself near people, that I'm going to develop a deeper love and appreciation for those people. You know, I think that Paul was right in the sense of we do need chicken potlucks. Even if he said we didn't need them, we do. We need to go back to some of those old kinds of concepts. We need things like beach nights where we're there, yes, of course, to share in fellowship, but also to watch kids do the limbo. Those things bring us closer together. And the same thing is true of discipleship small group communities. It provides the context to get to know people at a heart level. Let's look at another tip. Fellowship involves sharing our spiritual life together. Now, this might sound like a no-brainer, but it is essential. The first church, apostles teaching, prayer. But some of the interactions that they were sharing, I, I suggest, cannot happen in the Sunday morning context. You actually have to form smaller Again, discipleship community relationships. Think about the difference between a Sunday morning and a discipleship community. On Sunday morning, we're emphasizing the vertical relationship. We show up together, we hear hear the word preached, we uh, worship through music, we offer up prayers to God. But in discipleship community, we are emphasizing the horizontal relationships. We're growing in God's word together. As iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens the other. I receive something from the word of God. I hear it from you. It challenges me. I learn more about you. It challenges me. Look at the way we're sitting. On Sunday mornings, we sit in rows. That's teaching-centric. But in discipleship community, you sit in circles because that is fellowship-centric. Now, there's an acronym that I like to use to help me think of my relationships and whether or not they are achieving fellowship. And the acronym is simply the word 
soap. We all need a little soap, don't we? Katie tells me this semi-regularly. If I'm not using soap, she says I smell. So soap is this. It's scripture, outreach, accountability, and prayer. If I'm coming together with other Christians, and none of these four things are involved, guess what? I'm not fellowshipping, I'm hanging out. But when I get together with Christians and their scripture and outreach and accountability and prayer, well, now we're getting into the Acts 2 type of dynamic. Let's look at one last tip. Fellowship pushes you to grow. It turns out that you and I can be really good at hiding aspects of our life and withholding. I don't know about you, but I can actually come to church on a one-hour Sunday morning pretty regularly and be a total fake about how my morning is actually going. I could be driving to church, have a total blow-up in the car, the kids, the, you know, my relationship with my wife, and then it's almost like you walk through the doors and you're like, hey, we're here, hey everybody, Jesus, Team Jesus here. Meanwhile... Maybe my marriage is falling apart. Maybe I haven't prayed in weeks. Maybe I'm addicted. You see, Scripture tells us that it's when you are known that you can no longer hide your stuff. When people start really knowing who you are, and you're looking them in the eye, and they're like, you're not being honest right now. And that's not an easy thing to hear. But we all need it. The Bible talks about letting things get into the light. The light shines into the darkness. And when the light exposes those things, then God can start dealing with my stuff. He can't deal with my stuff when I'm hiding it from him. What about another dimension of this? Maybe you've struggled with your faith. Maybe there's been seasons in your spiritual life where you doubted God. I suggest that just about every Christian will go through that season. And I also suggest that nearness to other believers can carry you along while those issues are being worked out. I think of Thomas when I think of this. You remember the post-resurrection, Jesus is risen from the dead. Several of the discipleships have witnessed in person the risen Christ, and now they're going back to the other disciples, and they're saying, we've seen him. We've seen the risen Lord. And what's Thomas's reply? Thomas says, I'm not buying that from you. Unless I am standing in physical proximity to Jesus to where I can actually stick my finger in the nail hole. If he's standing six feet away, that's not good enough. Then I will believe. He was adamant in his unbelief. But listen to what Henry Nouwen observes. Although Thomas did not believe in the resurrection of the Lord, he kept faithful to the community of the apostles. 
In that community, the Lord appeared to him and strengthened his faith. I find this a very profound and consoling thought. In times of doubt or unbelief, the community can carry you along, so to speak. It can even offer on your behalf what you yourself overlook and can be the context in which you may recognize the Lord again. You see, I believe that we're always two people at the same time. There's one person who's unbelieving and there's another person who's right there with the Lord, trusting God. And it turns out that in community, the believing person tends to be elevated and strengthened. His voice becomes louder. But when I isolate, when I get lonely, it's the doubting voice that starts becoming stronger. I hope you're seeing this morning why this particular housekeeping principle is so important to your spiritual life. The Bible talks about relationship in terms of fellowship, and we live in a socially awkward time. So the only way to pull ourselves out of that dynamic is applying these principles, embracing storage love, showing up because proximity matters, sharing our spiritual lives together, and pushing one another to grow. Over the pandemic, I was invited into a pastoral call with Pastor Emeritus of Grace Chapel, Lexington, Gordon McDonald. I know some of you actually sat under his ministry. And it was a very insightful call where his title of the call was The View from 80. He was looking at life backwards. And he had developed 15 principles or insights that, you know, he could pass along to younger pastors and say, listen, if you're going to get 15 things right, get these 15 things right. You want to know what the number one insight he shared on the list was? It was this. Put the most significant people in your life into your calendar first. One of the problems in our relationships today is we do the exact opposite. We put everything into our calendar and then we try to squeeze the most significant relationships into the calendar. The same thing is true about this fellowship that we're talking about with the local congregation. If these relationships, if you're going to weight them, these relationships matter eternally. These are the people that you're going to be spending eternally with. These are the people that God's called you to partner with for the sake of the gospel. Can I challenge you to do something tangible this week? Here it is. We can hear a sermon like this, walk away, forget everything that's said. But if you put action to it, you'll remember it. I want you to leave church service today and do something really scary. Pull out your calendar and start evaluating it. Ask yourself the question, am I applying this principle? Am I putting the most significant relationships into my calendar first? In fact, some of you might have to take out an eraser or buy a new calendar. I don't know what you're going to have to do, but you're going to have to rewrite the calendar in order to apply this principle. And 
I encourage you when it comes to the spiritual family, put Sunday morning in the calendar and put a discipleship community into the calendar. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we are so grateful for the word. We're grateful, Lord, that the principles of the, Lord, the word, they uh, transfer beyond any time or occasion or culture. It doesn't matter where I live, when I live. I can practice storage love. I can be involved in the fellowship of the church. I can invest in the people that you have put in my life to walk with Jesus, to serve Jesus, to be on mission for Jesus. I ask, Lord, that as we engage in this new season of ministry, that we, the church, we would show up in force, that we would, of course, apply good housekeeping principles. And uh, we do pray for your blessing over this missions conference coming up. We, we know, Lord, that you're going to work, you're going to move through this conference. We pray all this in Jesus' name.